Okay, hey, we're going to get started kind of right away because there's a, a bit of ground to cover this morning. I'm so excited to be back with you. If you would, please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians chapter 4. Uh, as I kind of said just a, a moment ago, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 31 here in a moment. See, at, at Substance Church... We believe that the whole Bible is the inspired word of God. Every chapter, every verse, whether Old Testament or New Testament, we endeavor here to preach the whole Bible expositionally, which means we often go book by book, paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse. And this isn't an always an easy task because we come across passages that are often difficult for us to hear because they call us out on things we would rather not be called out on. But there's also another difficulty in expository or expositional preaching, and that is we come across passages that are sometimes hard to understand. Some passages can be taken just right at face value. They can be interpreted and applied right away. But other passages, because the Bible is, 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 is written, has been, has been compiled over 1,500 years, and it, it's made up of three different languages and almost 40 human authors, all being inspired by the Holy Spirit, we, some passages present a little bit of digging that we have to do. We have to, we have to research, we have to dig into it before we can rightly understand and interpret and apply it. And today's passage is one of those passages. In fact, Galatians chapter 4 verses 21 through 31 is said by many scholars to be one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament. But I want to encourage us this morning. God would not have given us this Bible, nor would he have given us his Holy Spirit to keep us in the dark. Okay, so he wants us, God the Holy Spirit is going to help us this morning to each of us can walk out of here with a basic understanding of the main thrust of this text. Hallelujah. So before we read it, I would like, I think it's going to be helpful if before I read this passage, we are reminded of really the big Bible story that includes a guy named Abraham. Okay, so after Adam and Eve rebelled in the Garden of Eden... God saw that humanity would just plunge into a downward spiral of wickedness. And so in in Genesis chapter 3, God promised that our wickedness would not have the last word. He promised a rescuer, a redeemer, to redeem mankind from their evil. And so fast forward to the flood and Noah, and then after the flood, humanity continued in this downward spiral of wickedness. Humanity even built a tower called Babel, and it was just essentially this big shrine of self-worship. Look at how awesome human beings are, is basically what Babel was all about. And God, in his mercy, he confused all of humanity's languages. At, At one point in time, all of the world spoke one language, but at Babel, in his mercy, he confused humanity's languages, and then humanity spread out all over the earth But God, his plan wasn't just to frustrate the plans of mankind who was evil. He still wanted to rescue and redeem mankind from their evil. And so he began this rescue mission that he had promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. While Adam and Eve were still in the garden, he had promised this. And he began this rescue mission through an average Joe Middle Eastern dude named Abraham. You can read about all of this in the book of Genesis. Gen- uh, Abraham's story starts as Abram, but his story is really in the middle of the book of Genesis. So in your leisure, in your devotion, read the book of Genesis and catch up 
on this big story of the Bible. God, by his sheer grace, for nothing that he saw in this average Joe named Abraham, God made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise. Abraham was currently childless. He had no children, but God promised him, guess what? You're going to be a father. And you're not only going to be a father, Abraham, you're going to be a patriarch of a nation of descendants as numerous as the stars. And Abraham, what's more about this promise? This is God. He says, I'm going to bless and redeem men and women and children from every nation on earth through you and your descendants. Your descendants ultimately culminating in the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. This was the promise that God made to Abraham. And there was nothing that Abraham needed to do in order to make this promise come to pass. He just simply believed it. And it was counted to him as righteousness, it says. So there's a definition of faith right there. Faith, you hear that word a lot in church. Faith is simply believing God. That he will accomplish all that he promises. Of course, the the pinnacle of his promises is is realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's believing God, that Jesus Christ, God the Son, accomplished everything needed for our redemption and forgiveness and eternal life. That is the gospel in a sentence, basically. Now, faith, being as simple as believing God at his promises, as easy as that sounds, faith isn't always that easy, is it? Because we humans, man, I don't know about you, I want to do things on my own. I want to do things my own way, in my own time, in my own strength. I think all of humanity is like this. And if you don't believe me, just watch my two-year-old son insist on buckling himself into his car seat as the whole family stands there for a half hour in the Bueller's parking lot like, dude, get a move on it, right? Insisting, no, 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 no. I'm doing things my own way. Now, Abraham and Sarah... They were no different than my two-year-old son. Abraham and Sarah believed, yes, God would fulfill his promise. There would be a son. Abraham would be a patriarch. The world would be blessed through them, through Abraham. But God wasn't working as quickly as they wanted. And so they they decided to help God out a little bit. Again, you can read all of this in the book of Genesis. Sarah, Abraham's wife, who had been barren her entire life, she could not have children, she suggested to Abraham, she said, hey, why don't you take my slave woman, Hagar, now slave had a much different connotation uh, back then than it did in 19th, 20th, 21st century today, it was a different thing, but she said, Abraham, take my slave woman, Hagar, and, and sleep with her, so that we can get the ball rolling on this patriarch thing, because God made this promise, but he's... He's really nowhere to be found. And so rather than waiting on God to fulfill God's promise, Abraham took it upon himself to, notice the air quotes, fulfill God's promise. And he and Hagar, the slave woman, had a son named Ishmael. Now, my wife and I like Netflix. There's a show on Netflix called Nailed It. All right? and, and the premise of this show is that they invite all the contestants to look at this picture of a gorgeous, beautiful, professionally made cake. And these contestants look at it, and then, and then they're sent off to try and replicate that exact cake. And it turns out in disaster every time. But the joke of the show is that, ah, 
nailed it. Like, look, look at, look at how close we got. And it's not close at all. It's a nightmare. Abraham and Sarah, when they tried to realize God's promise themselves, stepped back after Hagar delivered this boy named Ishmael. They stepped back and they said, nailed it. But it was a disaster. They didn't nail it at all. Sure, they had produced an offspring, but it was according to their own ability. It was according to their own biology and flesh. The boy didn't even belong to... Ishmael didn't even belong to Abraham and Sarah. He belonged to Abraham and the slave woman, Hagar. This was not God's plan. Now, brief commercial... If we were to go to Genesis 17, we would now see it's because of this very situation why God ratifies the covenant of circumcision. It's built into the male body, circumcision, to remind Abraham and all of his male descendants that though they can biologically procreate, only God, by his promise, can create the blessed nation that he intended to. That's why circumcision came about to begin with. What a fun topic. (laughs) Abraham and Sarah's foolishness came back to bite them. So roughly 13 years later, despite their very old age, Sarah was in her 90s, and despite the fact that she had been barren all of her life, God, hallelujah, fulfilled his promise to Abraham and Sarah Sarah gave birth to a son, a child of promise, a child of the spirit. They named him Isaac, which means laughter, because God's miracles always produce a joy of heart. But the laughter would be short-lived, because at an early age in Isaac's life, Ishmael, the older brother, began to mistreat and persecute him. There was enmity between the child of flesh and the child of promise. And to this day, there is enmity between their descendants. As Ishmael went off, and he's the father of the Arabs. And as Isaac went off, and he's the father of the Jews. It doesn't take long to turn on the news and to see the enmity that is still residing between these nations. Now keep that story in your pocket. Right there, front pocket, whatever, if you're right hand or left hand, keep it right there. Because in our passage this morning, the passage we're about to read, Paul is going to use that very story to illustrate for the Galatians, the young Christians that make up the churches of Galatia and the Roman province of Galatia, and he's going to illustrate for us what he has been saying throughout the entire book of Galatians all along. And This is basically what Paul is is writing in the book of Galatians to us and to to the ancient churches. He's saying this, yours and my forgiveness, yours and my salvation, yours and my Christianity in no way depends upon your doing. Yours and my right standing before God depends entirely on what Jesus has done for us On his cross, nothing that we do in our own strength adds anything to our forgiveness and salvation and right standing before God. Nothing. That's what Paul has been communicating. And this story that we've just summarized in the book of Genesis, the story of Abraham, he's going to use that as an illustration to prove that very point. Okay? 
So remember, Paul is the author of this book that we call Galatians. It was once a letter. It was a letter written some 2,000 years ago to a bunch of churches that he had just planted, and then he moved on to go plant more churches. And right after he moved on, these teachers from Jerusalem came up called the Judaizers. And they were teaching a bit of a different message than Paul's. They were telling the young Christians of Galatia uh, that you can't be a Christian merely by trusting in Jesus and believing the promise. You can't be a Christian by faith alone. You also need to obey the Old Testament law in order to be true Christians. And that's not true at all. It's a lie. And so Paul writes, starting in verse 21 of chapter 4, Tell me! You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we believe that you want to teach us this passage by your Holy Spirit. So please teach us this passage by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If we're coming to this passage cold turkey, if we're just, you know, if we're up at 6.30 a.m. on a Monday morning, time for our devotions, and it's time to read, you know, chapter 4, verse 21 through 31, we're going to read this and go, what the heck is going on here? Right? If we're coming at a cold turkey, we, it's difficult to understand. But remember what we put into our pocket. The story of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac. It's the story that Paul is referencing in verse 22 when Paul says, For it is written. So here's a little key to understanding this passage. From verse 22 through verse 31, Paul really never stops referring to the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar in the book of Genesis. He says, for it is written, because it is written in the book of Genesis. And Paul tells us in verse 24 that, that he's telling us this story for a reason. It, 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 this story is true, it's historical, it's a real life story, the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. But 
What Paul is suggesting to us and to the Galatians is that this story should also be interpreted allegorically as an illustration. See, Hagar and Ishmael and Mount Sinai, where the law was given to Moses, and the present Jerusalem of all of the Jews who are still following the law, if not been yet set free by the Messiah, Jesus, Hagar, Ishmael, Mount Sinai, and the present Jerusalem all have something in common which Paul thinks is very relevant to the young Christians of Galatia, and it is very relevant to us this morning. Conversely, Sarah and Isaac and the Jerusalem that is above, as we've seen all of those things mentioned in our passage, those all have something in common that is very applicable to the people of God in this room this morning. And so I'm going to give you a thesis idea. This, if I could summarize all of what we've just read, including the story of of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, if I could give you a thesis statement that I think Paul is really getting at in 21 through 31, this is what I think Paul's saying. That no one has ever attained forgiveness and eternal life with God by their own strength. Or by their own self-reliance. And yet, so many of us spend our Christian lives expecting ourselves and expecting each other to do so. To essentially earn by our own strength a place in the kingdom of heaven. And what Paul is saying in this passage is that it is bondage to believe that. It is slavery. And so the title of my sermon is the slavery of self-reliance. And if you are a note-taker, here are my three points. I know I got a clip. I got to move. They're kind of longer points. I had less time to prep, so it's not as refined. So, So here's point number one. To one degree or another, we all desire to operate by our own strength. We all desire to be self-reliant, self-sufficient, autonomous, and independent. I'm going to show you where I got that in this passage, and I'm going to show you what it means. Point number two. But that self-reliance, church, is slavery. It is bondage. It is everything that Jesus desires to free us from. Point number three. To one degree or another, we are all not only guilty of trying to operate on our own strength, we are guilty of expecting others to do so as well. I'll rehash those points when we get to the points. So bear with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll. Point number one, to one degree or, or another, we all desire to operate by our own strength, to be self-reliant, self-sufficient, autonomous, and independent. Paul begins in verse 21 by saying this. Listen to his language. Tell me, you who desire... To be under the law? You who want to base your Christian walk on your works? You who desire to essentially earn your own place in the kingdom of God? Tell me. Have you ever tried to give a gift to a super self-reliant person? You're like, well, yeah, we gave you a gift last Christmas, Chris. (laughs) Have you ever tried to buy... 
the meal for someone who is just, he bleeds self-reliance. Have you ever tried to offer to clean their house or, or watch their kids or bring them groceries? Self-reliant people simply cannot be in someone's debt. They can't do it. You can watch them writhe and quake when somebody's giving them a handout. Oh, oh, because self-reliant people have to earn everything that comes their way. Self-reliant people have to deserve what comes to them. There are no handouts. Now look, our desire to work, our desire to participate and to accomplish, that's not inherently evil. Adam and Eve worked in the garden before the fall. We have been hardwired into our DNA by God to be workers. It's the self-reliant part that'll kill us. Operating by our own understanding. It's the, I I will only produce my own means and my own methods. It's that part that gets us into trouble. It's when we insist on earning just a little bit the grace that God wants to give us freely through promise. Now, none of us would ever call it that. None of us would ever be so bold to say, yes, I'm a completely self-reliant person. But many of us think this way when it comes to our church attendance. Many of us think this way when it comes to, oh, I missed the tithe box again. God must think that I'm, I'm a wretch. Oh, look at how successful my ministry or my Bible study is. Look at how many people are under my influence. We're earning a bit of our righteousness before the Lord in our works. To one degree or another, we all desire to be under the law, like Paul writes in 21. We all desire to earn a little bit of our good standing before God. And that is exactly what the Galatians are doing. They're listening to the Judaizers. The Judaizers have traveled from the city of Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem, to tell the Galatians that forgiveness and eternal life is the result of God's giving and our earning. No, no, no. Paul goes, whoa, what did you just say? Well, forgiveness and eternal life is the result of God's giving and our earning. Doesn't that sound nice? No. It's slavery, I'm telling you. Paul says, God's giving and our earning are incompatible. They do not work together. They are never and never will be dance partners. By definition, grace cannot be earned. Grace, the word grace literally means unearned or unmerited favor. So the moment we try to earn grace, it ceases to be grace. And so Paul is writing the Galatians in chapter 4 and he's saying, Whoa, we've seen how this self-reliance works itself out. And then he steers their attention toward Abraham. He says, just look at what happened when Abraham tried to earn what God simply wanted to give him. When he and Sarah tried to manufacture what God desired to be a miracle alone. Tell me, Galatians, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Do you not see that the law was never intended as a ladder for you to climb for your own self-reliant redemption? Do you not see that the law is simply intended to convict you 
The law wasn't ever intended to save you. It was intended to enslave you. To enslave you to the idea that you cannot earn your way into the promised redemption of God. You can only believe it and receive it. Verse 23. So what does the son of the slave woman Hagar... And what does Ishmael and the law, which was given at Mount Sinai, that's why Mount Sinai is written there. He's talking about the law. What does Ishmael and the law and the present Jerusalem and the slave woman, what do those all have in common? That's verses 23, 24, and 25. They all have in common, point two, the slavery of self-reliance. Let's take one second of honest introspection as we look at point number two, the slavery of self-reliance. How do you feel, be honest with yourself, how do you feel about your position in relation to God after you've spent an hour in His Word versus after you've spent an hour just watching Netflix? Do you feel different in your relation with God? Do you feel more confident if you've spent that time in the Word instead of letting your mind wander on Netflix? Do you feel more loved? Do you feel more righteous? Do you feel more acceptable to Him? Continue the introspection. Imagine that you were asked to lead a Bible study the very same week that you fell woefully back into decades-old sin patterns. Would you feel any less worthy to lead the study? Let's say you fell into sexual temptation. Let's say you looked at something online and you spent a lot of time on that website. Would you feel after that encounter any less worthy as a child of God to lead a Bible study than if you had overcome the temptation? Would you feel maybe even guilty to lead the Bible study? These are two signs that you and I might be enslaved to self-reliance. We are either filled with boasting when we succeed at obeying, or we're filled with despair the moment that we fail at obeying. On the days when we succeed at following God's rules, on the days when we succeed at acting more Christianly, if we're honest, we cannot help but boast a little bit inside. We can't help but feel a little bit more confident about ourselves and our standing before God because we are sinful. Conversely, on the days when we fail, and I fail more than I succeed if we're going to compare ourselves to the law. On the days when we fail at following God's rules, on the days when we fail at acting more Christianly, one indication that we're enslaved to self-reliance is that we are filled with despair. Not conviction. That's different despair because we're gauging our success and our failure in the kingdom of God based upon our performance and not Jesus's just look at the rich ruler who approaches Jesus in Luke chapter 18 and he asked Jesus a very interesting question what must I do to inherit eternal life did you catch it What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
the rich ruler continues, I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered anyone. I've never stolen. I've never lied. I've perfectly obeyed my mother and my father. Do you hear his quiet boasting in the success that he has as juxtaposed against the law? Do you hear his quiet? He's feeling good standing right next to the Son of God. He's actually looking at eye level to the Christ himself. What else must I do? Look at my resume. Even when we succeed at obeying the law, we fail. Because our broken hearts cannot help but boast in our earnings. Martin Luther comments, The rich ruler's works looked good. And indeed, his works gave every appearance of being good. In reality, though, precisely because of the goodness that he placed upon his works, and precisely because of the trust that he placed in his good works, they were evil. They were deadly. But the story of the rich ruler doesn't even stop there. We see the flip end of the paradigm. Jesus reminds the rich ruler of one law that the ruler is not following. He's completely forgotten it. Jesus tells the rich ruler, go and sell all of your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. Now, was Jesus creating a new law? No, he was not. He was simply exposing the man's disobedience to the first law, which was to have no other gods before God. The rich ruler walked away in despair, his head hanging from failure because he was unable, rightly, in his own strength to successfully obey the first commandment. His possessions were his God. He was unwilling to part with them. So with these things in mind, no wonder Paul writes in verse 21 of our passage, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law, what it requires of you? So what does the slave woman, Hagar, what is Ishmael and the law? What is Ishmael and the law and the present Jerusalem, which is represented by the Judaizers? What do all of those things have in common? The slavery of self-reliance. But conversely, what does Sarah, the free woman, and her child of promise, Isaac, what do Sarah and Isaac and the Jerusalem that is above, what do they have in common? Freedom. Freedom. Paul is arguing that those of us this morning who come to God by faith alone, we are just like Isaac. Those who come to God simply believing his promise. You're a child of promise. And children of promise, according to John chapter 1, we're not born of the blood. We're not born of our own free will. We're not born of flesh. We're not born of self-reliance. We're born of God. It's an act of miraculous, marvelous grace why you are a Christian. Hallelujah. And then in verse 27, Paul quotes from Isaiah 54, and he basically just hammers home to the Galatians that this idea of salvation through promise, this was always God's plan. This was always God's heart. So, believers, maybe you're here this morning and you've heard the promise of God. 
visitors, maybe you've heard the gospel, the good news that on yours and my behalf, Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God's laws. He never tasted the despair, the despair of failure because he never sinned. And he never tasted the pride of self-reliance because he fully relied on the Holy Spirit while he obeyed all that God had commanded. And though he lived his life in perfect conformity to God's laws, he willingly died on a cross in yours and my place as our substitute. We deserve the punishment for our disobedience. Jesus took the punishment for us. And he rose to life. And he now simply invites us as God has invited since day one, to believe that He has done everything needed to secure our forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. He invites us this morning to cast off the slavery of self-reliance and the ups of our boasting and the downs of our despair. Stop measuring your own performance, church. Look at Jesus's. And then worship and celebrate and let the gratitude therein stir you into holiness. Point number three, and I'm going to wrap up. To one degree or another, we are all not only guilty of trying to operate by our own strength, we're also guilty of expecting others to do so. In verse 28... Paul says, now you brothers, like Isaac, now you Christians who simply believe the promise, you are children of promise. But, verse 29, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, listen, so also it is now. Now here's the connection Paul's making, and it's important that we see this. Paul is connecting Ishmael, the slave of the child born according to Abraham's flesh. He is connecting Ishmael to the Judaizers who are demanding conformance to the law. But Paul is also connecting Isaac, the free child born according to God's promise, to the young Christians in Galatia who simply believe the promise. And here's what he's saying, okay? What he's saying is that the way the Judaizers have come into Galatia and they're treating the Galatians by expecting the Galatians and even demanding them to look a certain way, to behave a certain way, to believe a certain way, what the Judaizers are doing to the Galatians is nothing less than persecution. Just like Ishmael persecuted the child of promise, Isaac. Now, This was mind-blowing to me as I studied this a couple of days ago and and up through this morning. It was mind-blowing because normally when we think of persecution, we think of physical harm being inflicted upon Christians by people who are outside the church walls. But here is the sobering truth. What Paul is getting at, to one degree or another, all of us in this room often act like Judaizers. All of us are guilty of placing one another under the law. All of us are guilty of persecuting other blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. And we do it every time we expect one another to be farther along than we are. Every time you are in community group and a brother or sister shares a little bit about their theology... 
something that they're wrestling through. And every time somebody else in the room pounces on it and says, blasphemy, heresy, you can't be here if you believe that. That's Judaizing. That's Judaizing. I am all for right and sound doctrine. Don't hear anything else than that. But when we do not afford our brothers and sisters the grace to be sanctified in mind and soul by the Holy Spirit and not our hammering, when we don't allow that, we're Judaizing ourselves. I am all for hard truth. It needs to be preached. But man, we also need to give one another loads of space to simply be sanctified by the Holy Spirit who sanctifies. Look, I Judaize every... Here's a story from my own life. (laughs) This is humiliating. A brother in Christ came to me about five years ago in my old church. He said, I am struggling with pornography. And do you know what I told him? I said, bro, that's a little bit JV. That's a little junior varsity of you to keep struggling with this sin. I've had victory in that area. I belittled him because he wasn't further along. And he was coming to me for help and accountability. What a wicked, wretched, Judaizing heart I have. That if we could only be a community, a church of grace that gives people safety and time to wrestle with Scripture and let Scripture wrestle with them to become what God was always going to make them to be anyway without our bludgeoning help. We need to give each other space and grace and patience. Because if we don't, we are essentially doing the exact same thing that the Judaizers were doing. They were demanding that the Galatians essentially pull themselves up by their own strength and self-reliance. They were encouraging them to act contrary to the gospel itself. All of us, to one degree or another, expect one another to do in themselves what only the Holy Spirit can do. For spouses in this room, do you... Do you struggle with placing a timeline on your spouse's sanctification? Do you struggle with with thinking that, oh, next year at this time, my husband won't struggle with this any longer. Next time by this time, you know, next year, my my wife ought not to be this same way. You guys, our church, it's these expectations that make the world outside feel like they can't come inside because they're not Christian enough. Man, this isn't a place where good people gather. This is a place where dead people gather to come to life because Jesus is wooing them. We're dead. I'm dead in my sin. I'm a wretch, dudes. Give me the space and the grace and the gentle, loving, truthful reminders to me. Brother, I think I see some air in your theology. I think I see some air in the way that you walk and live. But then give me, please the grace and the space that the Holy Spirit would then do His work in His time. Not all of us in this room are wolves and we ought not to be treated as such. Yours and my forgiveness, our right standing, our Christianity, hear me, 
does not depend upon our doing. Our right standing depends entirely on what Jesus has already done. And there is good news for those of us Isaacs, children of promise, who often act like Ishmaels. And I'm sorry. Let's pray. Father, that it would be that a lost and dying soul would come into this building and come into this congregation from outside and that they would not be approached by someone, including myself, to put a demand upon them that they need to look or act a certain way to be here. Oh Lord, as children of promise, let us graciously extend that promise to others. The good news that all they need to do is receive the promise from you that Jesus did everything needed for the security of their souls. And then let us patiently, with great grace, walk with one another with joy as the Holy Spirit slowly but surely refines us into the very image of Christ. One day our theology will be perfect. One day our practice, our walk will be utterly holy. And in the meantime, you are doing that work. You are getting us there. You are refining your bride. Let us not act like Abraham and try to make something happen before your Holy Spirit is ready to make it happen. Give us this grace. Thank you for Jesus. Forgive my wretched heart. And help us to love one another as we're loved by you. In Jesus' name, amen.